the teleology of, of our of our lives became toward a crisis of some kind, which would allow then for a rebirth of some kind. Um, the problem with that teleology is that it requires a crisis in order to be fulfilled, right? And so, and so you know, you can't have the, a comeback unless there was, you know, this, this failure of some sort. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. I first met Greg Pardlow in graduate school. We were both studying nonfiction, and he was this kind of quiet, incredibly kind, thoughtful colleague and classmate. And one morning we all came in for class and everyone was sitting around the table and someone had read in the paper that Greg, this Greg, had just been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. He hadn't even mentioned that he was a poet. The collection that won him the Pulitzer is titled Digest. And a few years after that, he published a beautiful memoir titled Air Traffic about his father, who was an air traffic controlman and a labor organizer who lost his job following the famous air traffic controller strike of 1981. The book is about that event and then all the ways that it and Greg's relationship with his father reverberated through their family life. Greg's work is published widely. He's the poetry editor of the Virginia Quarterly Review. And right now he's teaching for NYU in Abu Dhabi, where I caught up with him about writing, about sobriety, and about learning to commit to a process of transformation when you can't even begin to imagine how it will turn out in the end. I think my life boils down to two kind of uh, before and after moments. One was the air traffic control strike uh, when my father lost his job and, you know, my family fortunes, as such as they were, uh, dissipated overnight. And then me getting sober uh, in 2011. In 1981, my, my father was an air traffic controller. And one of the, as you can imagine, in the 70s, one of very few African-American air traffic controllers. And he was also something of a... Um, a uh, social activist and labor gave him an opportunity that the labor union gave him an opportunity to bring together class his class and and race um uh, i don't know mission in, in life so he was active in the the air traffic controllers uh union and that activism filtered into our family life in, in ways that were foundational for me. You know, it's kind of forming the landscape, my moral landscape. So I identified very deeply with um, not only my father's, obviously, racial politics, but uh, his, his class politics as well. So when um, the Air Traffic Controllers Union went on strike against the federal government. And uh, I guess to give a little more background, um, the air traffic controllers were largely um, 
did not require a college degree to get that job. And uh, most of them, men in very you know, overwhelming majority of cases, were otherwise would have had would not have had as well paying a job as um, as that if it weren't for the opportunity that the federal government created in hiring them, or so went the logic of the federal government. Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, very new president. Uh, this was in he was inaugurated in January. The, the strike occurred in August, felt that the air traffic controllers who wanted, you know, more regular hours, they wanted better pay, they wanted better working conditions, uh, and had been had and had had little uh, success with previous administrations, at this point decided they were going to go on strike. They'd had enough and they they were seen felt like they were out of options. And so Ronald Reagan now confronted with this strike, needed to make his bones, so to speak, as a, a, a gun, you know, kind of um, straight shooting uh, cowboy politician that he, you know, sort of postured as. Rather than negotiate with the union, he fired 13,000 federal employees. And so, what was, nonetheless, despite all the, you know what the air traffic controllers felt, what was nonetheless a very good job, was now, you know, no job with no pension, no benefits, and you know, and my mother was working, but my father was by far the breadwinner of the family, and so you know, we had this very particular image of ourselves as upwardly mobile, you know, black middle-class family and all the resources necessary to maintain that self-image were overnight removed. And it took some time to kind of admit to ourselves that they were not coming back. And, and that kind of existential trauma uh, stayed with me. And the, in the, so the idea of, um, Kind of well, the way I've thought it through in the in the book was I began to look at these kind of moments of um, hitting rock bottom, so to speak, uh, moments of of transformation when you know the something's got to give, and um, and either the individual changes or is forced to change. You know, I'm talking about myself or members of my family. So it was a long-winded way of <laughs> kind of laying the, the groundwork of, of how I think about this repetition compulsion. And I, I think in a, in a way that narrative has turned up, you know, bad penny like uh, several times in, in my life. Um, not only in the sense, uh, in, in a very real sense, but also as in the way that I think about narrativizing my life, right? How do I tell the story of my life? And I, I've, it has fit very comfortably in my imagination into um, a kind of story of repetition. In the book, you talk about how 
you sort of construct in a way the the journey of your sobriety or maybe your journey towards sobriety as something that almost is it feels when I was reading it, it felt like it was almost like set off. Like you, like you lit the match to a very long fuse um, <laughs> of, you know, it, with the strike, but then it, it sort of brought you toward the moment of sobriety. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You're, um, I, I think in a way I, that's, this trick of writing that I'm talking about, I don't know if, uh, if it was, if there's any real connection, right. And in a sense, I, that's contrived. I'm, I'm telling the story in a way to suggest that, um, the strike and made my sobriety an inevitability. I mean, made my alcoholism and eventual sobriety an inevitability. Um, And the reason for this is, or the rationale behind it, is that the my father's kind of collapse of his self-image kind of defined the way I saw the story of my family, and necessarily in that the story of myself as um, as being kind of pre- the teleology of, of our of our lives was toward some sort of became toward a crisis of some kind which would allow then for a rebirth of some kind um, and the I think in the book the the kind of epiphany that I was hoping for and I and I don't think arrived uh, and and I say I don't think because I'm trying to remember if it's been a couple of years since I was deep into the book um, but I set up this this the problem with that teleology is that it requires a crisis in order to be fulfilled hmm. right and so, and so the the uh, you know you can't have the a comeback unless there was you know this this failure of some sort and so uh, part of the pursuit of health that the memoir narrative presumes of in this case in my book in, in this case um, is a, an awareness that I am prefiguring crises you know serial crises and that I need to um, imagine a new a new story of myself that would allow for um, well what we started talking about and that is uh, a a threshold without that does not require you know, suffering or, or some kind of trauma in order to uh, in order to, to cross it. In the 90s, ads for phone sex lines could be seen everywhere, flickering on late-night cable channels and printed on the back of magazines. Phone sex operators worked around the clock to fulfill fantasies. It all started with an idea from a guy named Mike Pardes, CEO and founder of American Telnet. 
But it was the women behind the phones who created the close-knit yet dysfunctional family that turned American Telnet into a multi-billion dollar company and revolutionized the sex industry. Wondery and Topic Studios' new podcast, Operator, is the untold story of Telnet, which dominated the phone sex industry until the money blinded them and it all came crashing down. I actually heard about this show a couple years ago when it was in development, and I am so excited to finally be getting to listen to it now. Follow Operator on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Did you experience sobriety as, at the time, as the kind of re- rebirth or productive, you know, reincar- reincarnation mm-hmm. post-crisis that you imagined it to be? Like, did you think at the time that you had reached the last one? No, no, that's a great question. No, I, um, and I think what that particular crisis taught me was that um was the kind of falseness of previous crises right the the because i as i say some crises like you know quitting my jobs or or you know having crashing my cars or you know breaking up with um loved ones, uh, and relationships, these are all contrived crises. And, and I would enter into them with the anticipation of this rebirth afterwards. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, there's this perpetual shooting myself in the foot, but the, the learning or the, the lesson of sobriety was that there I could not imagine um, what was on the other side of it in order for it to be of in order for it to to be the, the threshold that that it actually was. So I do you mean I you back, like you hmm. literally you truly couldn't or you felt like you shouldn't? I think I think both, and I'm trying to figure out. Um, if there's a if there's a distinction there, um, because I, it wasn't the first time I attempted to to get sober. I think previous times that I tried to get sober, I would imagine uh, when I imagined a life post sobriety, you know, or, or post rock bottom, that process of imagining my life would cause me to get to, to drink again because I didn't like the life that I it was imagining. I didn't want that life. I wanted a life in which I could still, you know, drink myself into oblivion uh, on occasion, using air quotes there. So part of that process, part of the necessary process was not imagining what was on the other side, giving up. A, a, a desire to know what was on the other side, 
as I'm talking about this, I, I hear myself talking about the writing process very much, you know, in, in entering into <laughs> entering into uh, a poem. As soon as I try and predetermine, you know, this is what the poem is going to say, and it falls on its face, and it, there's a there's a, a kind of um, a kind of faith that's uh, that I've been I don't know toying with isn't the word, but but kind of um, um, cozying up to, I don't know if it's a function of my age. I don't know if it's a, the, you know, what it is, but there's, um, the, the, I've been expanding my, my idea of what constitutes faith. And, and in that is a, a notion that of a notion of trusting what's on the other side and not needing to, not needing to construct it imaginatively in my mind ahead of time. How, how does that fit in to writing for you? Like how does, how do these fit. ideas map onto writing for you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I've been thinking about um, the writing both in, in the macro sense and in terms of a, a career and in the micro sense, in the in the terms of you know this project here, I think I I don't like to take commissions because I I don't trust the <laughs> I don't trust the um, my ability to uh, construct something that is not sort of self-serving in the end. So in other words, if you ask me to write a poem about X, I will, I, I will probably write, I will probably write a decent poem. I could, I could do it, but I think in my mind, there's a, a distrust of, of myself and my ego and there's a years of therapy there i'm 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 kind of um uh tender around the the ego and and it's i think that's been that's probably the biggest obstacle to my writing there i'm i'm juxtaposing the ego and uh kind of what i'm calling now faith and the ego needs to know what the outcome is, needs security, the security of knowing. Um, the ego wants to decide ahead of time who the characters are, right? And, and we see this in life. You know, uh, I, the ego needs to presume to know who one is speaking to, let's say. The faith mind, and, and which is I, I am now imagining as the, the artistic mind, it lets go of the need to know and uh, very Keatsian, you know, is, and sits in the indeterminacy. It sits, comfort, uh, makes itself comfortable with, um, with the mystery. 
And, and I don't know if that's a, I don't know how to make that a, if that's a practice, a, a part of my writing practice, but it's, it's clearly a, a core part of my writing ethos. And I, I want to sit down to work and get the ego out of the way, however possible, so that I can be open to, um, you know, contradiction, surprise, uh, play, delight, joy, sadness. And I think the ego doesn't want to experience any of these things. And it's, it's various levels of, um, of needing to know too. So it's not just needing to know how the poem, let's say if I'm writing a poem, how the poem's going to turn out. Um, but it's needing to, it, it turns into, and I, I'm, I'm so embarrassed even to say these things, but it turns into, and I, I also recognize it's very common, imagining how it plays out, it's going to play out in social media, uh, imagining, you know, what's the, what's the narrative going to be, um, you know, basically marketing the thing before I've, I've, already, I've even written the thing. And so this is a, it is a struggle and, and I don't pretend to, <laughs> to have made any great headway with it. Um, it is, it is something I, I find very distasteful in, uh, in my work. And so I'm hypervigilant, um, possibly to, to the point of, you know, overcompensation. Um, but to your question, how do, how do I get out of the ego? You know, it's the, the internal bullshit monitor. It's the, you know, it's the, 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 in terms of sobriety, it's, it's, um, you know, what is it in the, in the big book, uh, that took a, um, I don't even remember how it goes, but taking a, a, um, uh, account of myself taking an inventory and, and being a, a kind of fearless and and um in my self-criticism and my and honest in my self-criticism that's the language in the the big book from aa yeah right right mm-hmm. uh as i recall it's it's been it's mm-hmm. been a while um and i don't think it one ever uh, i certainly don't expect ever to achieve you know, that level of enlightenment. Um, and I don't think it's, it exists, but I do think it's, that's the, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm coming back to this idea, this image of the carrot on the stick. You know, I, I, I want, I want to challenge my ideas. I want to keep questioning, asking myself, is it necessary? You know, what, is, what, who's what god are you serving pardlo when you write x uh you know what what is it is it and i and i mean that both in the in the kind of um spiritual sense and a, and a or intellectual sense and a, a secular sense um 
in the secular sense that the work is always couched in ideologies. And I want to be conscious of the cultural assumptions and, I, um, and the, the kind of nefarious ways that we virtue signal in society and how I've picked, you know, I've certainly picked up uh, the various ways of virtue signaling and, and I, in a, in a craft conversation, in terms of craft, I, I think um, the kind of work that I admire is aware of the frames that, uh, that, uh, how do I decide to say this? So when I'm teaching, I, I tell my students, you know, every, every poem has its own cartoon physics, borrowing this term from, from uh, Nick Flynn. Um, in this poem, the, this poem creates a world in which you can run off the cliff and it will take you three seconds before you plummet. And in this world, you can paint a black hole on the rock and, and walk through it. So every poem, and I'm using poem just because it's easy to talk about for me, uh, but I think this is true of any, any text. Every poem has its own cultural assumptions. And I, I think growing up in um, a, an educational context in which I was aware of cultural assumptions that many of my classmates were not aware of, or, you know, just because they could not see it, they had not been excluded from it in a way that I had been excluded from them. Um, I'm sensitive to the ways that we assume that the, the world created by the text is a real world, right? It is, it is a uh, fact. And as, uh, Trimanda Ngozi Adichie, for example, very famously points out the, the danger of the single story. There is no such thing as one story. There is, there is, um, there are infinite number of, uh, perspectives. There are facts. Absolutely. But the way, but the, the story itself is is always a, a contrivance. It is always artifice. And so when I'm sitting down to write, I I want to be as aware of the the ways I'm protecting me, the author Greg Pardlow, the ways I may be protecting my I character, as we recall from our. Uh, beloved classes with Philip Lopate, um, how we may be contributing or complicit in uh, imagining a world that will appeal to a reader's sense of security. Um, and which is not to say that when I write, I want to I upset my reader's sense of security, but I but I want to be, I, tr I strive to be as conscious of the, uh, the, the, as many cultural assumptions as I can as a way of um, giving myself the options of, you know, there's certainly there are complicities that are necessary in the writing process. I'm complicit in writing in English, you know, most, most obviously. Um, but I want to have, I want to be aware of the choices that I'm making, as a as a way of um, 
sort of being conscious of, as I say, what, what gods I'm serving uh, when, I'm, when I'm writing. And how does that fit in or does it fit in with this idea we've sort of been touching on of negative capability or of faith? Because it sounds like what you're talking about mm. is, a, is a, an act of like intentional, supreme awareness and yet also sometimes the, if we're going to borrow Keats's language, the sort mm. of act of negative capability or of faith as you're describing it in writing to me feels like it requires maybe some suspension of your, mm, your self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am uh, I, I had a kind of defining um, conversation with a student once who who reminded me and and i've had this this conversation with many students but the so this is a kind of archetypal conversation where the student says something like um well i don't want to uh, i'm afraid of getting healthy because then i'll have nothing to write about or (laughs) or right you know (laughs) i'm afraid of solving (laughs) i'm afraid of solving these problems but my response to that is there's, there is absolutely no possibility of fully knowing ourselves. There will always be mystery. And, and I think that's part of the, the foundation that I'm calling faith is I think ultimately I, I, I cannot imagine a, a situation in, in which I, and we talked about this at the beginning of the, of, uh, the hour, I cannot imagine a situation in which I can will sit back and say, yeah, I, I've got myself all, all figured out. There will, there will always be, um, just because time is what, what it is, there will always be uh, an element of mystery in, in my own head. And I want to respect that mystery and, and, and sort of honor it. So. In terms of the writing process, I, I, I think about it like uh, if I'm, I'm sitting in my chair at my desk here and I draw this, this kind of imaginary perimeter, uh, a, a rainbow shape around myself on the, on the desktop, and I say what is inside this, this arc is what I know of myself. This is what I confidently know. I confidently know you know, I can, um, I can string together some rhyming sounds that are, that are going to be pleasant and, and, uh, and, um, I got a pretty decent sense of rhythm and, and I know I can do that. And I also know that, um, I've got a, a handle on, uh, you know, some elements of my, experience in life and, and some elements of, um, of pedagogy. And, and so I, I, I pretty confident that I can communicate, um, you know, this range of ideas fairly clearly and compellingly, which is not to pat myself on the back. I'm just, you know, this is what I, where my confidence is. If I'm writing within that range of confidence, then I'm not really pushing myself. I'm not really doing the thing that I want my work to be doing. I want to be writing (laughs) 
you know, it, for so long it was um, in my family. It's it's often thought of as a as a bad thing to, uh, and I think in many circumstances, it's thought of as a bad thing to talk about shit you don't know anything about. But I think in this case, I, <laughs> I, I very much want to be writing at the edge of my understanding, at the edge of my, um, of my self-awareness, of my awareness of the world. I want to be writing just in the, in the area where I'm not so sure I, I have this figured out. The problem with that is, <laughs> you know, the world, you know, readers, as I say, in most cases don't want to listen to somebody figuring it out uh, and and we're, we we want very much uh, leadership from our authors and, and poets we want declarative statements um and i don't know i'm i'm kind of i don't know if it's fair to blame readers i i'm in all honesty i my father, this is my father speaking in the back of my head, my father wants clarity, my father wants certainty. Um, and I think that's what I'm pushing back against in my writing practice. Is I, I want the permission, I want to give myself the permission to speculate, to explore um, and I'm conscious of the the kind of dangers of that, but that's that's how I, I thread that needle between, um, you know, being the the, the pursuit of self awareness, and hopefully that arc will be constantly growing and moving. Well, it has to be, but I will also in my process, I want to keep writing. I want to keep striving toward the just you know the, the outer perimeters of that of that arc. Was getting sober your first leap of that kind? Is that sort of sounded like that's what you were saying mm-hmm. earlier? Where mm-hmm. it was your, your first sort of gesture of really uh, yeah. m- t- making a big move <laughs> without, yeah. without uh, sort of on on faith like that. And and if the answer is yes, like how did that open a space for you to really be able to do that in a new way in your writing? Well, the second part of that question, the first part is, is emphatically yes. The second part, I, I, don't, I still don't know and I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, and, um, I, what I do know is that um, the kind of surrender that was necessary, that con- the continual surrender that is necessary in, in uh, remaining sober, maintaining a, a sense of sobriety, um, which not coincidentally has everything to do with getting uh, out from behind the ego. Um, I can see things in my work that I couldn't see before. And I'm, I'm able to, um, I think that if I I go back to my, my perimeter analogy, I think that that perimeter was stagnant for much of my, most of my adult life. And it loosened up and, and became um, a kind of 
pliable and, and um, living thing uh, after post sobriety. And, and so I'm, I'm engaging with the world in a way that is, is less, certainly less rigid. I think pre-sobriety was necessarily rigid because I had so many lies I had to <laughs> I had to preserve, right? And so, I, I, if you, when one starts to uh, shift around the the um, the, the untruths, then uh, then the whole thing begins to to crumble. But I think what's benefited my work in, in sobriety is is the allowing. Um, allowing myself to to live to to be in relation to um, the, the tra- I'm, I'm just reaching for abstractions here. I'm not sure entirely how to articulate it, but there's a and harmony is not the word either. But there there's a a, a kind of dancing relationship to um, to ideas to people to um, belief systems and, and value systems that I'm I have in as a, as a sober thinker that I, I could not I could not have imagined when I was uh, when I was drinking. Thresholds is a production of LitHub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.